There we go. All right, now I can get started. <laughs> so before I get started, I would like to do two things. First, I want to express my thanks to you all. This has been a very blessed weekend for me and for my family. Uh, past couple of months or so, we've been running around like a couple of chickens with our heads cut off. And so it's been nice to kind of come down here and just to enjoy a weekend together. And I want to thank you all for your kindness toward us. It's been a blessing. And I hope by God's grace to be of some small benefit to you this morning. And secondly, I want to inform you in case you don't know. And I want to remind you for those who should know that my church, Reformed Baptist Church of Elizabethtown, remembers you all constantly in our prayers. We pray for you, we pray for you as a church at our local prayer meeting, and I pray for you in my own private prayers. What you're doing here is hard work. It's a hard thing to be part of a church plant. And you're not doing it alone. We are praying for you. And that leads us, really, to consider our text this morning from the Song of Solomon. So please open up your copy of the Scriptures to Song of Solomon, chapter 2. This is one of my favorite, if not my absolute favorite, books of the Bible. For those who might be unfamiliar with it, let me take a moment and explain to you why, in way of context. This poem is not like the ironclad, logical treatise that is the book of Romans. It's not the gentle rebukes and the sweet encouragements that we find in the epistles of John. It is a word picture. It's a painting given to us by the goodness of God that depicts in stark, vivid tones the love between the Lord Jesus Christ and His church. This poem depicts the relationship between our Lord Jesus and His people in terms of a bridegroom and His spouse. How do I know that to be the case? That's a valid question to ask because I'm going to be interpreting our text this morning allegorically. And so you should ask the question, is that valid? Is that a right way to look at this text or am I stretching it? This idea of using marriage as a metaphor is not isolated to this Song of Solomon. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul says this, speaking of marriage, this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. And in the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, we read these remarkable words of our future hope. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. You see, brethren, this sermon this morning is for Christians. The realities of which I speak this morning are for those who know Christ as their beloved. And I was preparing to come and speak to you. I had this thought. In my head, if I only get one opportunity to speak to these new believers, if I only get this one chance, what would I impress upon your hearts? And it is this, that our union with Jesus Christ, the Beloved, is the central theme of the Christian experience. There's so many who will tell you to move on to deeper things. 
There's so many today who would brush over this topic as though it should be relegated to a youth Sunday school. But the truth is, there's no greater thing than this. This union with our husband is the root of all our blessedness in this life and the next. Is the Lord Jesus Christ your beloved? Can you say with the psalmist, Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none upon earth that I desire beside thee. Our text this morning marks the climax of chapter 2, the culminating point of the delight between the groom and his bride. We see the intimacy, the closeness of the Lord and His church. If you look up at verse 6 of chapter 2, His left hand is under my head, and His right hand doth embrace me. We see the church's desire to hold her beloved in verse 9. My beloved is like a roe or a young heart. Behold, he standeth behind our wall. He looketh forth at the window, showing himself through the lattice. She's looking for him. In verse 14, we see the desire of the Lord for the church. Oh, my dove that art in the clefts of the rock, in the secret places of the stairs. Let me see thy countenance. Let me hear thy voice. For sweet is thy voice, and thy countenance is comely. And this leads us to the simple and yet profound declaration that we will be considering this morning in verse 16. My beloved is mine, and I am his. He feedeth among the lilies. Our task this morning will be to explore the three propositions that we find in this text. First, that Christ is ours. Second, that we are His. And third, that He feedeth among the lilies. By considering these three points, we will see, by God's mercy, the glorious reality of our union with the Lord Jesus Christ and how that union is the root of all blessedness. And as we go through this verse, I have a task for you. I want you to examine yourself. We have to be careful against possessing these things only in our minds. Test yourself to see whether these things be true of you. And for those of you who do not know Christ as your beloved, who have not tasted and seen that the Lord is good, my prayer is that your eyes would be open to behold the glory of Christ, to repent and believe the Gospel. We first see in this text that Christ is ours. My beloved is mine. And the first question that we have to answer is, how? How is Christ ours? How can He be mine? How is it that this Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God and Son of Man, can be mine? He is all perfect, all holy, all righteous, all beautiful. He came in fashion as a man, as we read in Philippians. And in Isaiah, we find of ourselves that we esteemed Him not. It's true that the foxes had holes and the birds had nests, but the sun had not where to lay His head. But the beauty of Jesus wasn't in His appearance or in His miracles, but in His holiness and His righteousness. 
Have you ever considered the remarkable fact that the Lord Jesus Christ loved the Lord his God with all his soul, with all his heart, with all his mind, with all his strength, and he loved his neighbor as himself without fail throughout the entirety of his life? Have you ever considered that? Because we can't keep those commandments even for a day, let alone an hour. How many of us can honestly say that we've gone a day without sin? None of us. There's none righteous, no, not one, but thanks be to God that Christ is mine. He is mine by the gift of the Father who has given His Son freely to us. Don't we read those blessed words from the hand of Paul? Romans chapter 8. He that spared not His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how shall He not with Him also freely give us all things? The Father gave His Son to be the propitiation of our sin, to appease His own wrath against us. 1 John chapter 4. Herein is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. The Father gave His Son to be our wisdom, our righteousness, our sanctification, our redemption. And all this is summarized for us by the Apostle John in what is probably the most recognizable verse in all of Scripture. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. We spoke of God's providence this morning. And this is the culmination of God's providential workings in this world giving His only begotten Son. Do you know this love of God? Do you know this love of God, this gift of the Lord Jesus Christ given for you and to you? Christ is mine by His own gift of Himself. The Lord Jesus gave Himself a ransom for many. It wasn't a begrudging sacrifice was it? He willingly laid down His life for His sheep. In John chapter 10, we read this, Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. The Lord Jesus did not begrudgingly give Himself for you. Again, He said, For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give His life a ransom for many. Once more, Paul wrote this to Titus looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ who gave Himself for us, that He might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto Himself a peculiar people, 
zealous of good works. Christ is mine by adoption. Not that I've adopted Him, right? That's what the world would tell us that means. But that God the Father has adopted me and so Christ belongs to me as a brother. This is truly a remarkable thing. That our Father, our Father is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. All those who have been regenerated by the mighty operation of the Holy Spirit are made sons of God. And so joint heirs with Christ our Lord. That's what we read in the glorious words of the epistle to the Hebrews. For both He that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one. For which cause He, the Lord Jesus Christ, is not ashamed to call them Brethren, saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. He's not ashamed to call us brethren. Yet how often are we ashamed? How often are we ashamed to own Him? Oh, and we have these sweet words of Christ to Mary. Jesus saith unto her, Touch me not, for I am not yet ascended to my Father. But go to my brethren, and say unto them, I ascend unto my Father and your Father, and to my God and your God. It is a remarkable thing that Christ is ours by adoption. Lastly, the Lord Jesus Christ is ours by marriage. And I didn't intend to speak about marriage when I first started this, but it's in the text. This theme is its nearly too marvelous for words. Every time I speak about this topic, I feel as though I never ever do it justice. Do you not know that you are espoused to Jesus Christ? Do you not know that He is your husband and you are His bride? Some of you are young and yet unmarried, and yet you know, at least by knowledge, if not by experience, that there is no more intimate relation in all of human interaction than that of husband and wife. There's nothing like it. The Scripture says that a man and wife become one flesh. That's not merely speaking of the physical reality, but the metaphysical reality. There is a union that the Lord Jesus... Or, I'm sorry, that the Lord God creates between husband and wife. And this is how Christ is ours. He's given to us by marriage. This is what the Scripture says of Christ. Speaking of us, Thou shalt no more be termed forsaken, neither shall thy land any more be named desolate, but thou shalt be called Hepzibah. Hepzibah, and thy land Beulah. For the Lord delighteth in thee, and thy land shall be married. For as a young man marrieth a virgin, so shall thy sons marry thee. And as the bridegroom rejoiceth over the bride, so shall thy God rejoice over thee. And the Lord God, using Hosea as a figure of things to come, said this, 
Then said the Lord unto me, Go yet, love a woman beloved of her friend, yet an adulteress. That's us. According to the love of the Lord toward the children of Israel, who look to other gods and love flagons of wine. John Gill wrote this concerning this truth. By marriage, Christ has not only espoused our cause, He has also espoused our persons and betrothed us to Himself in righteousness and in judgment and in loving kindness and in mercies and in faithfulness and that forever. So that, O astonishing grace, He that is our Maker is become our husband. Christ is yours by marriage. The next question that we have to ask is this, in what ways is Christ mine? He is our great high priest. The one who atoned for our sin and ever lives to make intercession on our behalf. All the figures of the old covenant pointed forward to the Lord Jesus Christ, the mediator of a better covenant. Hebrews chapter 8 says this, And now hath He obtained a more excellent ministry, by how much also He is the mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. What are those better promises? Well, if you continue through the epistle of Hebrews, you'll find that those promises include the full satisfaction concerning our sin. You'll find help in time of need. Eternal rest with the present reality. The Lord Jesus, the captain of our salvation. The author and finisher of our faith. And all these promises find their summation in the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ is our great high priest, the anchor for our soul, seated in heavenly places, making intercession for us. And Pastor Ken told me that he preached through these verses with you all recently from Hebrews chapter 7. For such an high priest became us who is holy harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens, who needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once, when he offered up himself. He is our priest and he is our prophet. The final word from God who has delivered to us the glorious message of the Gospel. Hebrews chapter 1, God who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by His Son, whom He hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also He made the worlds. And it's interesting that The Lord Jesus Christ is referred to as the Word of God. The incarnate Word of God. The Word of God made flesh. 
John chapter 1. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And dear friends, this is such an important truth. Because there's many out there in popular circles, even those calling themselves Reformed, who will tell you that you need to look elsewhere. They'll tell you that you need all these things, but you need to look somewhere else to see the glory of God and to pursue holiness. But my friends, there's only one prophet of God. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Not only in word, but in deed. He Himself is the living Word of God. In Him, the fullness of Godhead dwells bodily. In Him are all the riches of godliness stored. It's all in Him. You have no need to look elsewhere. Look only to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our King who rules and reigns even now and will one day put all enemies under His feet. He alone is the head of the church, its ruler and chief. The Christian life is not a difficult thing to understand. It's hard to live out, but it's not difficult to understand. The Christian life is a life of submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we do. Dear saints, this is a mark of grace in your life if you submit to Jesus as King. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Wherefore, I give you to understand that no man speaking by the Spirit of God calleth Jesus accursed, and that no man can say that Jesus is the Lord but by the Holy Ghost. You cannot have Jesus as Savior and not as Lord. Or do we think that Christ is divided? No, the same Jesus who is Savior of the world is the same Jesus who is given the name above all names. King of kings and Lord of lords. Paul wrote this to Timothy, and it applies to each and every one of us. I give thee charge in the sight of God, who quickeneth all things, and before Christ Jesus who before Pontius Pilate witnessed a good confession, that thou keep this commandment without spot, unrebukable, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which in His times He shall show, who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, whom no man hath seen nor can see, to whom be honor and power everlasting. Amen. And this isn't just a confession made with the lips, is it? If we were to look at your life, would we see that the Lord Jesus is King? He is our shepherd, the keeper of the flock of God, the one who came to seek and to save the lost sheep of Israel. What does a shepherd do? I used to have goats. <laughs> you know, there's a very good reason why the Lord Jesus called Himself the Good Shepherd in John 10. A shepherd protects the flock. 
He provides food and shelter for the flock. He leads the flock to water. He keeps the flock together and brings back any strays who wander away. Is this not what the Lord is for His people? There's an old hymn that says, Jesus, Jesus, I'm resting in the joy of what Thou art. I am finding out the greatness of Thy loving heart. See, that's why a shepherd takes care of the flock, right? He loves them. Are we resting in Him? Is that true of you? Are you, are you resting in the Lord Jesus Christ? Keep your place here and turn over to Psalm 23. I'm sure most of you are familiar with it. Psalm 23. It's a beautiful description of, that we find of our Lord Jesus Christ as our shepherd. Psalm 23, a psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for Thou art with me. Thy rod and Thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil, my cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That is true because the Lord Jesus Christ is our shepherd. And there's only one shepherd. There's only one shepherd. We read in the book of the prophet Ezekiel, This is the Lord speaking, and I will set up one shepherd over them, and he shall feed them, even my servant David. He shall feed them, and he shall be their shepherd. Why is there fighting and disunity among us when we have one Lord, one faith, one baptism? Well, we know why, don't we? James tells us why do you war? Why do you fight? It's because of our members. It's because of the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. Let's cast away envying and strife and rest in the Lord Jesus who is our shepherd. He is our brother. Indeed, our friend who sticks closer than a brother. The one through whom we have received the adoption of sons. This should be a source of comfort and contentment for us in all circumstances. In the book of Proverbs, we read this, A friend loveth at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. What's our adversity? Isn't it our sin? Isn't it the corruption that is ours because of our father Adam? Oh, but our brother was born for a time of adversity. The one who came in the fullness of time to redeem us from the curse of the law. And thanks be to God who has 
adopted us as sons and daughters, who has given us such a one to be our brother. Again, Hebrews chapter 2. Wherefore, in all things, it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren. And here's the reason that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of his people. And the remarkable thing is this that as Christ was made like unto us, yet without sin, so too one day we will be made perfectly like Him. Isn't that your hope? <laughs> First John chapter 3, Beloved, now are we the sons of God. Now we are the sons of God. Right now, you are a child of God. And it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know when He shall appear, we shall be like Him for we shall see Him as He is. Finally, the Lord Jesus is our husband, our bridegroom, the one who loved us and gave Himself up for us. We've considered this briefly already, but it's such a crucial thing for us to understand. This is our great hope that one day we shall join with our beloved in that great marriage supper of the Lamb. Isaiah 54, Fear not, for thou shalt not be ashamed, neither be thou confounded, for thou shalt not be put to shame, for thou shalt forget the shame of thy youth. (laughs) Oh, I look forward to that. I look forward to that. Thou shalt forget the shame of thy youth, and shalt not remember the reproach of thy widowhood anymore, for thy Maker is thine husband. The Lord of hosts is His name. And Thy Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, the God of the whole earth, shall He be called. And what is our Lord's aim? What's, What's the end in loving us as a spouse? It's our sanctification. That we would be holy and blameless without spot or blemish before Him. This is our Lord's desire that we be made like Christ, so that the glory of God may be manifested in us. This is the model. Husbands, men who are looking to be husbands, this is the model that we are to follow. The Lord Jesus Christ gave up Himself so that His bride would be made acceptable before God. Is that how you love your wife? Is that how you love your future wife? Will you give up yourself for her sanctification? Well, thus far we've considered very briefly what it means that my beloved is mine. So now we'll turn to consider the second part of this text. I am His. Again, the first question we have to answer is how? Firstly, we are Christ by way of election. We have been chosen in Him from before the foundation of the world according to the great mercy and kindness of God. Ephesians chapter 1 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places 
in Christ, according as He hath chosen us in Him, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, wherein He hath made us accepted in the Beloved. Do you see in that mind-boggling portion of Scripture the great truth that all things are ours in Christ Jesus? Our election is in Him. Our adoption is by Him. Our standing before God as acceptable is in Him. Because we have been chosen in Him before the very foundation of the world, we are sure of the final culmination and consummation of our salvation. And yet, we have to be careful, don't we? We have to realize that these beautiful doctrines of grace are the throne upon which Christ sits. Right? We're not elected merely for the sake of election or so that we can go out and argue with Arminians. We were elected to the praise of God's glorious grace who gave us His Son, His only Son, whom He loves for us that His name might be magnified among the heathen. This is what the Lord Jesus meant when He referred to the Father giving the church to Him. John 17, I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them which Thou hast given Me, for they are Thine. That's us. Secondly, we are Christ's by way of regeneration. That miraculous operation of the Holy Spirit of God in giving life to those who are dead in trespasses and sins. You remember what the Lord Jesus said to Nicodemus, right? In John chapter 3. Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. We were once dead in our trespasses and sins, weren't we? We were at one time without life, aliens and strangers from the promises of God, cut off from His love. We were slaves to sin, servants of unrighteousness, caught in the bondage of the radical corruption that we inherited from Adam. But not only that, we loved our sin, didn't we? There's no time for putting on airs, dear saints. We have to admit that we loved our sin. And that's why one of my favorite of all Bible phrases, it's two words, you ready? But God. Turn over to Ephesians chapter 2. Keep your place in Song of Solomon. Turn over to Ephesians chapter 2. Beginning at verse 1. And you hath He quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, 
the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past, in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as others. And if that's where the story stopped, we would all be damned and going to hell. And then my favorite phrase of the Bible, verse 4, But God, who is rich in mercy, for His great love wherewith He loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together, listen, with Christ. By grace ye are saved. And hath raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places, listen, in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come He might show the exceeding riches of His grace and His kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are His workmanship created, listen, in Christ Jesus, Unto good works, which God hath prepared before. I'm sorry. I memorized that in the ESV, and so that's why I say it like that. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Do you see the doctrine of regeneration? That God hath quickened us together. With Christ. I don't know about you, but that makes me want to fall down on my face and worship. Praise God for His riches of mercy and kindness toward us in the Beloved. Thirdly, we are Christ by way of purchase. By purchase. The Lord Jesus has bought you with a price. He has made you His own. There are those out there who will twist this concept into an avenue to satisfy the lust of pride. They'll say something like this, Oh, we were bought with a price because we were so worth it. No. You were bought with a price because of the value that the Lord God had for His justice. You remember what the Lord said to Moses? Exodus 34, And the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and to the fourth generation. We have to be careful to guard against all forms of man-centered thinking. We were purchased by Christ to satisfy the demands of God's justice in regards to our sin. And because the Lord Jesus purchased us, we belong to Him. We are no longer slaves of sin. We are slaves of righteousness. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, What? 
Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? For ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. You see what Paul said there? He tells us to glorify God in our bodies and in our spirit. So let me ask you a question, pop quiz. What else do you have besides your body and your spirit? (laughs) Nothing, right? That's what we are. We are creatures of body and spirit. In other words, Paul is telling us that the Lord Jesus did not merely purchase an hour on Sunday morning. He purchased the entirety of our persons. The fullness of our essence. In other words, He purchased us in totality. Lastly, we are His by way of voluntary submission. Giving ourselves to Him with willing and loving hearts. That might sound a little odd coming from a Reformed Baptist. Speaking of our voluntary submission to Christ... But the Scripture makes very clear our responsibility in regards to the Gospel, doesn't it? In fact, if any here today do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, let me state in no uncertain terms that the Lord God of heaven and earth has commanded all men everywhere to repent and believe the Gospel. You are commanded by your Creator to forsake your sins and to follow after Christ. And the wonderful truth is that it is Christ who makes us willing. A dead heart cannot will itself to life. Any more than a dead corpse can will itself out of a grave. But have you ever read Psalm 110? Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power. In the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning... Thou hast the due of thy youth. If you are begrudgingly following Jesus, if you are reluctantly walking in His way, then you have every reason to doubt whether or not you know Him. What did He say? John 14, If ye love Me, keep My commandments. He didn't say, if you want to escape the fires of hell, keep my commandments. He didn't say, if you desire to live long on the earth, keep my commandments. He said, if you love me, keep my commandments. That's the question of the day, isn't it? Do I love Jesus? Do you love Jesus? Well, the second question, in what ways are we Christ? We are His people whose full identity is found in Him. Yes. This is what we find foretold in the book of the prophet Hosea. And I will sow her unto me in the earth, and I will have mercy upon her that had not obtained mercy. That's us. And I will say to them which were not my people, again, that's us, Thou art my people. And they shall say, Thou art my God. As we see in 
Isaiah 62, we were once called forsaken and desolate. That was our name. Forsaken of God and desolate. Our identity was found in our rebellion. Oh, but in Christ, now we're called adopted and abounding. Adopted as children of God and abounding in the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are His people, His possession, His inheritance, the subjects of His rule. As the Apostle Peter said, But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of Him who hath called you out of darkness into His marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. We are His disciples, right? His learner servants. We are to sit at His feet and learn of Him. You know, in the Gospel according to Luke, we see a a remarkable account of Jesus interaction with the two sisters, Martha and Mary. He came to their house and we read in in Luke 10 verse 40 that Martha was hosting. And the text says that she was cumbered about much service. She was so busy doing all these things that she got upset because her sister was sitting at Jesus' feet. And the chapter ends with these words from our Lord. And Jesus answered unto her, Martha, Martha, thou art careful and troubled about many things, but one thing is needful. And Mary hath chosen that good part which shall not be taken away from her. Do you content yourself to sit at the feet of Jesus? To learn from Him? To be like Him? Or are we cumbered about much service? And do you find yourself too busy doing the Lord's work that you don't have time for the Lord Himself? Oh, that we would learn contentment. Oh, that we would be like Mary and sit at His feet and learn of Him. Isn't that what He said? Matthew chapter 11, Come unto Me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take My yoke upon you and learn of Me. For I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Is your soul burdened with heavy loads? Do you find His yoke difficult to bear? Could it be that you haven't learned this lesson yet to learn of Him? We are His wife, His body, bone of His bones, flesh of His flesh. We're called to submit to Christ with all reverence, just as wives are commanded to submit to their own husbands out of reverence for Christ. But this means more than that. It means more than that. We're called to rejoice in our Savior's love for us. 
Isn't that what the wife does? Rejoices that she's the object of her husband's love. This is what we see of the king in Psalm 45, a messianic psalm. So shall the king, that's Christ, greatly desire thy beauty. For he is thy Lord, and worship thou him. And later, in the Song of Solomon, we read these words in chapter 7, I am my beloved's, and his desire is toward me. Oh, to live constantly in that one thought that I am my beloved and His desire is toward me. Do you know that in your life? Do you know the Lord Jesus' desire toward you? And that brings us to the final portion of this verse. He feedeth among the lilies. And this is such a sweet promise. A sweet promise. Assurance. To understand it, we have to consider what these lilies are, more precisely, who these lilies are. These lilies are the church, the redeemed of the Lord, those who are able and truly to say that the beloved is theirs and they are his. The first two words, first two verses of chapter 2, we find these words. I am the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valleys. As a lily among thorns, so is my love among the daughters. In Hosea, we read this great promise from God. I will heal their backsliding. I will love them freely. For mine anger is turned away from him. I will be as the dew unto Israel. And he shall grow as the lily. And cast forth his roots as Lebanon. You know that word lily is interesting. Its concrete meaning is white. You know that white is the color of purity, right? It was this word that was used to describe certain ornaments in the temple. The church is described as a lily. Because of her purity, which is her beauty. Oh, that we would really grasp that. Dear Saint, your beauty is not in what you know. You are not beautiful if you can articulate the deep things of theology. You are not beautiful if you do all the right things and check off all the right boxes. Your beauty is your purity. And your purity doesn't come from you. Your beauty is your sanctification. That great work of the Holy Spirit in producing the fruits of holiness. Do you desire to be beautiful in the eyes of the Lord your God? Or do you desire to be beautiful in the eyes of men? And I don't just mean outward appearance, right? Oh, that we would be known for our pursuit of holiness. That we would learn to foster the growth of purity in our lives. Did you know you are already holy? Those of you who are in Christ, you are holy. You are set apart. You are washed. You are cleansed. 
sanctified. You are a chosen people. For those in Christ, the question is not, are you holy, but is your holiness on display? Are you bearing forth the fruit of the Spirit? Let me encourage you, those of you who are in Christ, to take your eyes off your past sin. I usually get emotional when I preach, so I apologize. How can my Savior think me beautiful? Turn over the Song of Solomon. Go to chapter 4. And look at verse 7. Thou art all fair, my love. There is no spot in thee. Those are the words of Christ to His church. How can He say that to me? I don't know myself as well as He does, and I know that I'm ugly. I was a fornicator. I was a liar. I was a thief. But we're washed. The glorious truth that we who were once filthy and vile and forsaken and desolate are now made beautiful in the sight of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's not a beauty that we earn. It's a beauty that's given to us. It's Christ's beauty. I don't know about you, but I long to hear those words in perfection. To stand to stand before my Savior and to hear Him say, Thou art all fair, my love. There is no spot in Thee. And our Savior feedeth among the lilies. His church. That word feedeth refers to taking sheep out to pasture. Isn't that a wonderful thought? That the Lord Jesus Himself leads us out as sheep into the pleasant pastures which He has prepared for us. You know, it it might go against some of our conservative American sentiments, but the Scripture describes us as sheep. That's what we are. We are the sheep of Jesus. We are to be meek and mild, even as He is. To be gentle and compassionate. To walk even as He walks. We're not wolves, we're sheep. Have you been led out into the fields for the grazing? Do you know what it's like to taste and see that the Lord is good? To find your nourishment provided for you by the Savior. The Lord Jesus provides all things for His church. He supplies her with every need and every good thing. And that good thing might be starving. That good thing might be facing a martyr's death. But the Lord Jesus is the shepherd who takes us out to pasture. And the reason we can say that is because the Lord Jesus Himself is our every need and our every good thing. If you're seeking satisfaction anywhere else, even in good things, 
If you are looking for joy in any person or thing besides the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, you're going astray. Can we say with the psalmist, Whom have I in heaven but Thee? And there is none upon earth I desire beside Thee. That used to be my favorite Bible verse because I thought it was a really spiritual thing to say, right? Well, this is my favorite Bible verse. Let me quote it for you. But after going through hard things, (laughs) it really is my favorite Bible verse. Can you say that? Is this beloved your own? Is Christ yours? Or are you still looking elsewhere? Oh, that we would be weaned of this world. Amen. <laughs> it's so easy, isn't it? Take our eyes off Him. Oh, that the Lord would wean us of this world. Have you been listening to this message about the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ and His love for His church and, and even now felt a stirring in your soul? Those of you who don't know Him, have you felt that pang within your soul? That, that pang of guilt and shame for your sin? If you have, don't ignore it. That's the voice of the Holy Spirit telling you of your need of Christ. Follow after the instruction of the Scripture. Seek ye the Lord while He may be found. Call ye upon Him while He is near. Today is the day of salvation. We're not promised tomorrow. We're not promised a future deathbed in old age. One last chance. This is your one last chance. Today, even now, is your opportunity. If you don't know Christ, do not harden your heart today. Turn away from your sin. Repent and flee from it. And run to the Lord Jesus Christ. Follow after Him. Place all your hope and confidence in Him. And Christians, we need to hear that too. We have three blessed promises that I'd like to remind you of as I close. First, we are promised that all who look to Christ shall live. Look to Jesus. Second, we're promised that all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you have felt that fear of the Lord fall on you, call upon His name and you shall be saved. Third, and lastly, we have been promised that His yoke is easy and His burden is light. That's what He said. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Come to him. Come to him now and find rest for your soul. Let's pray. Oh, Father God, I I thank You for this opportunity, Lord, to gather with Your people on this Lord's Day. 
and to consider our Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, I thank You for Your kindness and Your goodness in sending Your own Son, Your only Son, whom You love, to die for us, to live for us, to rise again for us. Well, Father, I pray that as we go about our life, that You would give us grace to set our eyes on Him. Lord, that, 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 that every thought that we have, every interaction that we have, every task that we set our hands to, would first be preceded by this thought that my beloved is mine and I am His. Oh Lord, I pray that You would make us holy. I pray, Lord, that You would wean us from the world, even in our experience of this life. Father God, I pray that You would use us. Use all of us, Lord, to Your own glory. I pray that You would fit us to be useful in Your kingdom, Lord. That we might be faithful witnesses of the grace that we have known in the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh Lord, I pray that here in Paris, Tennessee, that You would use these dear saints for Your own glory. Oh Lord, bring revival. Lord, bring awakening. Oh Lord, bring sinners to Yourself. All that the name of Jesus might be magnified. Oh Lord God, I ask these things in His name. Amen.